public split between President Trump and some members of his own party has been led by Republican lawmakers who are not seeking re-election. Among them, Charlie Dent, congressman from Pennsylvania, now serving his seventh term in the House. Dent is a prominent voice of the moderate middle and also a Trump critic. Two years, but Dent is somebody uh, who I think a lot of people consider to be almost a dying breed in, in Republican circles, a Northeastern moderate Republican uh, who never embraced President Trump and who never embraced uh, Capitol Hill. Garrett, I was just handed the statement from Charlie Dent announcing his intention to resign basically next month, right? Talk us through this. I believe High Valley Congressman Charlie Dent on the way out and much sooner than expected. We knew he was not seeking re-election. Now he says he's resigning next month. WFMZ Jackie Ferris joins us with what that means for Why did an influential and well-regarded congressman who was pretty much guaranteed re-election decide instead to step down? It wasn't due to scandal and it wasn't due to advanced age or illness. So why did Charles Dent, the vibrant leader of Republican moderates, suddenly decide this spring to give up his seat representing Pennsylvania's 15th district. I'm Chris Citullo, and this is 20 by 70, the podcast for people who expect more from Philadelphia and from democracy. I got a chance recently to talk to Mr. Dent about his stunning decision to resign, the way he's seen Congress change over his 14 years there, the causes and effects of hyperpartisanship, and his dealings with President Trump. I'm not sure I ever got him to pinpoint exactly why he's leaving the Hill, but he was more than candid and sometimes very funny about the other topics. The occasion was the recent 10th anniversary celebration of the Penn Project for Civic Engagement, an organization of which I'm the co-founder. The congressman and I shared the stage at the Science History Institute in Old City that morning with PPC's other co-founder, Dr. Harris Sokoloff. And at points in the conversation, you'll hear Harris chime in. About 120 people attended the event, a few of whom got to ask questions at the end. So now, in this bonus episode of 20 by 70, let's listen to a lightly edited version of that conversation with Charles Dent on what turned out to be the very last day of his service as a United States congressman. Welcome, Congressman. Thank you for having me. Great to be with you. And uh, we are especially uh, blessed today because we are sharing with Congressman Dent essentially the last weekday of his service as a congressman. <laughs> Uh, in, the United, in uh, the United States House of Representatives. He has been in the House of Representatives since uh, January 2005, representing the 15th District, where I used to live um, and be represented by him. Uh, it used to make sense, the 15th District. It was the Lehigh Valley, Bucks, and Northampton counties. Now, since it was gerrymandered a few years ago, and we're trying to do something about that, it covers not only uh, those counties, but Berks, Dauphin, Le and Lebanon counties as well. Uh, Congressman Dent was born in Allentown. He worked in a variety of occupations uh, after graduating from Penn State, earned an MPA from Lehigh University, and served as an aide to Congressman Don Ritter, who also represented the 15th. Then he was elected to the House of Representatives in Harrisburg, the General Assembly, then followed with service in the Senate and won election um, to the House of Representatives in 2004. As many of you know, um, Congressman Dent has emerged boldly and on the national stage in his recent service 
as one of the um, lonely and courageous voices for moderation, comp compromise, and actually working together to get something done in the Congress. In that role, he was uh, part of the Republican Main Street Partnership and leader of what was known as the Tuesday Group. He played an important role in the debates about o Obamacare and immigration this year, and it has been a wonderful record of service. Thank you, Congressman. Thank you. Um, so, in your long service, both in Harrisburg and Washington, um, you've talked about how you've seen the nature of lawmaking and relationships across the aisle evolve and maybe not in the best of directions. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. And first, thank you for having me here. It's really great to be here in Philadelphia. Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, you were very kind to offer me a, a night in a hotel, but our ethics rules really don't, don't allow it. So, um, although on Sunday, you, you could put me up in the Ritz, right. it wouldn't matter. Right. I wouldn't be a member of Congress. Right. <laughs> so, so uh, we're going to party in the Four Seasons, you know, on Sunday. So I crashed on my daughter's couch last night <laughs> over by 30th Street. It was great. And, uh, uh, but the, uh, seriously, uh, a lot of things have changed. When I, when I was in Harrisburg, I, I felt in Harrisburg, it, 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 at that time, it could be painfully pragmatic. I mean, there was no deal that could not be cut. That was just Harrisburg. Uh, and Washington was much more, it, it could be excruciatingly ideological. That was my observation in the transition in mm -hmm. 2004 from the State Senate to U.S. House. Um, but as time has worn on, uh, it, it's both, things have changed. Uh, Harrisburg has become a lot more like Washington, excruciatingly ideological, just mm -hmm. like Washington. Washington's probably only gotten, only gotten worse and has become largely dysfunctional because so many members have, do represent very safe seats and their political safety is to the bases. Can you hear me in the back okay? Pull that up a little higher. There you go. Their political safety is to the bases and so they tack there. There's the reward. The reward is at the base and it is, they don't see a political reward for consensus or compromise. In fact, fringe elements of the bases call uh, consensus or, or compromise capitulation mm -hmm. or surrender. And so that's really the dynamic that we're operating. Now that said, that's fringe elements of the bases uh, that in many cases that are driving this narrative. But I found that there's a lot of space in between, mm -hmm. a lot of space, and uh, that space feels like it's underrepresented in the U.S. House. How about personal relationships among lawmakers? You know, we can harken back, even as the time uh, I've been in this city as a journalist, we saw things happen such as Orrin Hatch and Ted Kennedy working together very carefully to create the CHIP program for children's insurance. Uh, is that kind of reaching across the aisle from people who might fight about a lot of issues but can come together on one issue? Do we see that anymore? What stands in the way of that? Yeah, there's, it still it, it happens to this day. You know, people are constantly working across the aisle. For example, uh, on uh, immigration, this whole DACA, the Deferred mm -hmm. Action for Childhood Arrivals, or the Dreamers, going what you will. You know, there, we have bipartisan proposals to do just that, mm -hmm. uh, to, to, to accommodate these young people, maybe tied tie to some reasonable border enhancement measures. So we're doing it right now. In fact, we're, we're forcing the issue on mm -hmm. some bipartisan bills it was a discharge petition. One of my final acts. It was. Uh, it was. We, we. I signed a discharge petition, and my name stays on even if I'm out. By the way, they can't move my name. We, it's part of the calculation. We knew what we were doing here, and so. But we're going to force a vote on this because our leader. You know, there's the work is being done by the members, but I believe our our leaders in the House, especially, are fearful 
to bring up, just afraid to bring up some issue like this, out of, again, out of fear that there's going to be some kind of a, a rearguard action against them, that they'll take them down. If this, because it, it will, this, this uh, deferred action program will pass the House. But the vote might be, you know, a whole lot of Democrats and a, and a significant number of Republicans, perhaps, but not not a majority of Republicans, perhaps. And so I think that that that's what scares our leaders. Okay, you say they're fearful. What are they fearful of? Uh, they're they're fearful that the, they're afraid uh, that that uh, their leadership positions will be challenged. Mm -hmm. now, remember, John Boehner left in part. Uh, because he was constantly under attack uh, from the, the, the Freedom Caucus, which is only about 40 members. They could never elect one of their own, but mm -hmm. they could certainly, but they could certainly uh, cause problems for a speaker who must be elected by the full House. Um, and, uh, and that's really the key thing. You need 218 votes, and generally you need 218 Republican votes. So if 40 of them decided to tank the speaker, that would throw the speakership into the disarray. And so I think Paul Ryan has learned uh, a lesson from that, uh, but I think maybe the wrong lesson. I said the, the lesson was that you, know, you should be marginalizing, marginalizing these types of people. Don't empower them. Don't, don't, you have to stand up to them, push back. <clears throat> cut your deals. Like we said, cut your deals with the Democrats, whatever the issue is. If you need 40 votes, talk to them and do what you have to do and get your votes and then ignore those guys. Some of them will come back into the fold, but they don't, they don't. So, so in your experience, you're, you're on the House Appropriations Committee. You, yeah. you lead a subcommittee on, on Veterans Affairs. When you need to get something done and you need to vote, or at least you'd like to vote of a member of the Freedom Caucus, how does that conversation go? Well, I'll tell you, here, here's a good story. Uh, Mick Mulvaney, who's now the budget director, this is, I don't know, this is a few years back, before, before President Trump, before he was OMB director, I had my bill on the floor military construction, veterans affairs. And I was expecting an amendment that would prohibit uh, the display of the Confederate flag at a, on a veteran cemetery. And I was going to accept the amendment. Now, I didn't want to make a big deal, just accept the amendment and prohibit the display of the Confederate flag at a veteran's cemetery. Uh, so, okay, this amendment's being offered. It's, it's literally one o'clock in the morning when this is happening. And Mulvaney comes down to me, and this is the sidebar, and I'm standing at the microphone managing the bill. He says, uh, I'd like to offer a secondary amendment to this provision, to this amendment that's coming. I said, well, what do you want to do? He said, well, I want to uh, make sure that this Confederate flag amendment would only apply to the state of Wyoming. <laughs> and I said, Mick, there were, Mick, I don't think there were any uh, Confederates in Wyoming. Um, you know, it's you know, north of the Mason-Dixon line. Yeah. Uh, and he said, well, will you support it? I said, uh, no. And he said, well, why? I said, well, because I'm from Pennsylvania. We won that war. You know, he's from South Carolina. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and he was getting, he, he thought that was kind of a flippant answer. And I said, well, but seriously, I don't want to deal with this. I said, I really don't want to deal with this. I, don't, I just don't want to deal with it. Uh, and he said, well, you know, a, a bunch of our guys are going to vote against this if, if you don't do it. I said, Nick, here's how it's going to work. If, if this amendment goes into my bill, my bill's going to pass. If this amendment doesn't go into my bill, my bill's going to pass. Because, you know, we're, doing, we're funding veterans here, and we're taking care of military construction projects, taking care of the needs of military families. That's what we're doing here. People are going to vote for that. You know, the Confederate flag, this is a sidebar issue. I mean, seriously. And I don't want to deal with it. You know, I just, you know, I, and they tried this before, a year earlier, and they did it to a guy, Ken Calvert. And I, I said, you're trying to Calvert me. I turned his name into a verb. I said, you're trying to Calvert me here. You're not, you know, it's not going to happen. So 
And so he was, so he was steaming, went back to the leadership, and to Vince being a pain in the ass, you know, he's, he's not being helpful. And I said, well, you know, so the bill ends up, goes on the floor. Yeah, the, the Confederate flag amendment gets in, just as I thought it would. Uh, Mulvaney never offered his secondary amendment, and all those guys in the back were all PO'd at me. Uh, they all voted for the bill. They all voted for the bill, and they ended up getting caught up on an LGBT issue, but it, didn't, it, it was fine in the end. But the point is, so you just have to tell them you can't help them. But, you know, Mulvaney and I get along just fine. We actually get along well. And he called me this week about the rescission package. We still talk. And so you just, what I, what I found with him, you know, even though I fight with those guys, we respect each other because we're honest with each other. Uh, in fact, uh, when he became budget director, it's a true story. This is just after Trump won the election. I'm in the member's gym riding the bike, and Mulvaney would often be on a bike near me. And I see him rolling in, and it was this rumor that he was being considered for budget director. And I thought it was a joke. I really did. I, and I see Mulvaney, and I, I yell across the gym, hey, hey, Mulvaney, you can't vote for any budget, so we might as well make you budget director. You know, yuck, yuck, yuck. <laughs> he says, yeah, Dad. He said, yeah, Dad. He said, he said uh, yeah, he said, that's right. He said, you, you may have to vote for one of my budgets. I said, oh, come on, Mick. I said, not even Trump's nuts enough to take up one of your budgets. <laughs> and he, said, he said, yeah, you're probably right about that. So we're all getting a good laugh out of this. And of course, they make a budget director. And so, right. so we still talk. So you, you played a... Uh, uh, a very significant role during the attempt to repeal Obama, Obamacare in the House um, uh, early in uh, President Trump's term. Can you take us inside the room a little bit um, in terms of the role you played and what yeah. kind of pressures were brought to bear? Well, first, there are a lot of challenges with the health care law. I mean, there, there are all kinds of problems. I, I voted against it. There, there, there are enormous problems. Uh, but when the new year began, the, the new administration began, the idea was in January, they were talking about just repealing the bill outright, then replacing it over two years. And, I, and my eyes popped, and I said, well, my, no, no. I said, this is a problem. I said, this would completely destabilize the insurance market. You can't do this. You really can't do this. You can't set rates. This, this is a fiasco. So then they came to their, and then, then President Trump tweeted out something in effect. You need to do repeal, replace. Oh, OK, well, that's, that's helpful. So that, that's, that's out there. So a now helpful fact, tweet. We wanted that to know that. That was actually a helpful was, tweet. Many are, most are not. This one was. <laughs> Uh, and the, uh, so what happened then, um, uh, so they started coming up repeal, with repeal and replace bills. And the challenge I had with it was, and I always knew this was going to be the, the big issue in uh, Ob the Obamacare debate, was what do you do about uh, states like ours that expand the Medicaid? There are a lot of states, including many uh, states, that have Republican governors, which have, have expanded Medicaid. And so I was in regular conversations. I talked to Governor Wolf. I talked to Governor Kasich, who was very outspoken. He was contacting me as a Republican governor who expanded and was pretty vocal about it. So, so we had these discussions. And, and everything I saw showed that if we were going to change Medicaid the way that it was proposed, you would have moved these people into the health care exchanges. And the way the bill was written at the time, there was a $4,000 tax credit, maximum tax credit. And I said, well, that's not going to be sufficient for a lot of people to afford insurance. So if they cycle off of Medicaid, many don't stay on that long, they go into the uh, exchanges, they'll go bare. They won't be able to afford the insurance, and you're going to have a lot of uninsured people. So that was my main concern. I also, and I shared, but I just said to you, I said to the president, uh, to his face in the Oval Office, and I said the uh, Planned Parenthood piece, <clears throat> whether you, uh, I happen to support Planned Parenthood, but, but if, whether you like them or not really isn't the issue. It, it, uh, the Planned Parenthood 
matter shouldn't be part of the Obamacare discussion. I mean, it's a separate issue, and I said just, just leave it alone, just bringing in more fights that, than we need. But that was an ideological thing. So, so I shared that, and I shared that with the president, actually, and, you know, the first meeting was pretty good. You know, he, he listened, he was very respectful, and I handed him a proposal from Governors Kasich, Sandoval, Snyder, and Hutchison, four Republican governors who, expand, who have Medicaid expansion states, and I said it was a 10-page proposal, I said, about how to to fix Medicaid. And I handed it to the president, and he thanked me, and that was on a Tuesday. Then two days later, I get invited back. There were 17 of us in the room this time, and I knew I was the only one in there who wasn't for the bill, and he goes around the room, asks everybody how you're voting. <laughs> I was the second one he asked. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, I'm opposed to the bill in its current form. And he says, well, why? You know, this was on Thursday. I said, well, for the same reasons I told you on Tuesday. You know, <laughs> and so the, uh, nothing had really changed. <laughs> and so, you know, then he got, he got a little upset. Uh, and he's uh, <laughs> going to destroy the Republican Party. He's going to take down his presidency. He was going to ruin tax reform. He's going to blame me. It's my fault. Blah, 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 blah. It's going on. And, uh, and I finally stopped him. I said, Mr. President, I, uh, this is going, it seemed like it was going on forever. I said, can I ask you a question? He says, yeah. I said, are you telling me if we don't pass this health care bill in this form, we won't be able to do tax reform because the baseline won't be low enough? That's exactly right. And when you lose, you lose. And then off he goes again. And so uh, it goes around the whole room. Everybody says, yes, Arlene, yes. Now, a few of them lied to him. Uh, but then, uh, then he, after it's all over, it took about 45 minutes, he goes back and he just looks at me, glares at me, and he just says, you still a hard no? I said, oh, I'm still a no, Mr. President. <laughs> he starts it again. And I, I said, Mr. President, he said, oh, I'm done talking to you. Tell him I don't want to hear it anymore. Turns his head away. I said, oh, okay, well, I walked in a no. Now I'm a hell no. So that's how it works. But that's what... Uh, but it was kind of interesting, because I just saw in the paper, I was just reading something before I came in here, uh, the, the Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, Kirsten Nielsen, threatened to quit uh, because of, uh, you know, she got yelled at. I said, well, you know, that's just kind of typical. So, but I don't uh, work for him. Uh, you're leaving Congress, first announced that you wouldn't seek re-election, now you've decided to, yeah. to resign without quite filling out the term. Can you tell us why? Sure. Uh, well, when I... I had been thinking since 2013, uh, since the government shut down, that I was going to probably get out of Congress at some point. I was playing it on a year-by-year you know, -year basis. Uh, and, uh, and then uh, in, over the last, I'll say, March, April, I kind of pretty much made up my mind that I probably wasn't going to seek re-election. And then in September, I, I announced that I would not be seeking re-election. And since then, I've been having conversations with people and, about the future. And every, you know, these conversations, they go on. And you know, they progress. And you reach the point where you have to start making decisions. And when people start making offers to you, and I haven't finalized anything, but I didn't want to finalize anything while I was in Congress. People say, well, you're leaving early. That's, isn't that terrible? But I said, but did you feel better if I cut a deal right now and then voted for the next six months? I mean, then I'd be accused of conflicts. So I just said I'd rather just you know, uh, finish negotiating with whoever I'm going to negotiate with uh, and do it without having to worry about voting on anything. Are you leaving in part because you're worn out by the atmosphere? Uh, you know, I feel actually I I enjoy it. I kind of thrive on it. In fact, right up until uh, uh, right up until uh, yesterday, I mean, I was in the speaker's office on what day was that Tuesday. Yeah, we every week I meet with him, a weekly group. I sit there with the Freedom Caucus and a few other members, and we go at it. And he enjoys the show, the speaker. He likes it. He likes to watch us argue. And we'll argue, this week we were arguing about the farm bill. Has he changed at all uh, in his uh, demeanor since he decided not to run for real life? Uh, the speaker. Yeah, I think he, he looks a, a bit relieved, uh, and, and, a, a bit relieved. I, th he's, 
I think he feels a bit tortured. I mean, I know in his gut that he's not comfortable dealing with the president. I mean, he, he just isn't. He's, no, he's been forced to work with him, so he, he tries. And, but I know it's, it's hard for him. Um, it's hard for him. I just remember what happened during the 2016 election when the president, uh, you know, after the Access Hollywood video came out, and we had a, there was a Monday conference call, just the House Republicans, and, uh, and I was, we were all on the call, and, and we were, they didn't have an open microphone, and 10 of us said something. And I was the only one who said that, uh, the, the speaker had basically said, you know, you run your own race and basically distance yourself from, the, from Donald Trump. And I, I guess I was about the fourth one to speak, but I was the only one who said, you know, I agree with the speaker. He's right. So there's probably gonna be more. I, I hadn't endorsed uh, Donald Trump, I didn't vote for him. But I, I, even before Access Hollywood, I was, I, was, I was already out. But some of these others you know, were, and the reaction was, you know, how can you do that? He took a lot of grief for that. And, and I backed him up, and I called him up after the conference call was over. I said, Paul, I think you said the right thing. I thought that was the right position. So I knew how, he, how I think he really felt. Uh, but he's had to make accommodations. He's the speaker. He has a lot of members who, uh, you know, who, 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 uh, you know, who feel differently. And that's one of the challenges we, we have. You, know, you have people on the far right who expect you to be, you know, uh, loyal, you know, blind, blindly loyal, uh, you know, almost to the point of sycophancy. Uh, and there, you have that, that element. Any, and any type of deviation, you know, is considered, uh, you know, treason. You got the far left out there that's in total resistance mode. So even if they agree with the president on a policy, they, they won't. They won't because they won't support him because they hate him. And that's, that's a bad place. And I've told my Republican Democratic colleagues, look, you support the president if you can agree with him and you work with him. You up you, you, you check him if he's moving in a bad direction, and you call him out if he's going off the rails. It's not that, that, that difficult. But that's, the left doesn't like to hear that, and the far right doesn't like to hear that. Sycophancy, resistance, that's it. Uh, let's move from in, inside or on Capitol Hill um, back to the 15th District, and also just what you sort of hear in your office through email and calls. Um, You've talked a lot to constituents over the years. You hold a lot of town hall meetings. Um, have you noticed any change coming from the public, from the grassroots, in terms of understanding that? Are they getting more ideological? Are they reflecting the split you're talking about in, in Congress? Yeah, a large number of people are uh, you know, very, becoming much more tribal. That, in other words, even if they they, they're just going to, you know, it's red team, blue team. No matter what your, your team is doing, you kind of have to be with it. It's, it's, a, it's a little scary. And I've had some good friends, you know, who are upset with me, you know, who have been longtime supporters. You know, you're not supporting Trump. I had one guy in particular, retired executive from a major company, said, Charlie, I agree with you about Donald Trump. You know, he says, I don't like, the, this guy says, he says I, I abhor the way he behaves and the things he says. But you have to support him. He's not Hillary Clinton, and he'll give you some good policies. And... And I said, Bob, you know, I think we, his name's Bob, I said, Bob, I, you know, I think we maybe agree on the facts, we just come to different conclusions. And you know, that was, but that's kind of what you're dealing with, with, with some folks. They just, uh, they're there. Now, that said, I just saw a poll in my own district. I didn't do this. The Morning Call and the Muhlenberg College Institute of Politics just conducted a poll in my congressional district. Uh, I should say the new district, which is similar to the old one. But it was interesting that they, they found that, um, you know, I was just looking at my approval numbers and my approval numbers for Republicans and Democrats were the same. 
it was like 45, 25, 45 approved, 25 disapproved. It wasn't a favorable, unfavorable, it was approved, disapproved, which is a, usually get lower numbers, certainly on the approval rating. Uh, so, but it was fine, the numbers were good, but they were ident essentially identical. So in other words, yeah, there are people out there who are really tribal, but I get the sense there are a lot of people who are not. Mm -hmm. They're just, they're not, but we hear from those uh, on the, on the, uh, in the, uh, the hard base, or in some cases the fringe. They have an outsized voice, and they scare, frankly, they scare a lot of members. And this is the other thing I've always noticed, that a lot of members of Congress on both sides, on both parties, are afraid of fringe elements of their bases. And the legislative leaders are afraid of their members. So on, on that point, that's a great segue to, I wanted to bring in Harris. As many of you know, we had hoped to have Richard Harwood, the founder of Harwood Institute, and really one of the godfathers of civic dialogue in the United States, uh, to be here today and to have a conversation with Congressman Dent. Uh, unfortunately, we learned Thursday morning that um, there had been a death of Mr. Harwood's family, very immediate family, so he had to uh, attend to that. So we're sorry he's not here. Um, Harris has been a colleague and sort of a student of Rich Harwood's work for a long time, a lot of which involves like trying to raise up the voice of the people you said are, are getting lost in the conversation and to help them sort of community level up, grassroots level up, construct solutions that then can make their way to the halls of power. Harris, you want to talk a little bit about that, you know, that approach to the work? Sure. Um, so this notion that we've become more tribal is something we see a lot in our work. We see a lot of people um, you know, uh, wanting to talk with each other, with people with whom they agree, but not knowing how necessarily to talk with people with whom they don't agree. And their experience has been that when that happens, when they get into a room and they're, and they're talking with people with whom they don't agree, things get nasty really quickly. So our work has really been to set up context where that work can be done, those conversations can be had both safely and constructively. And we've learned and we've seen that when that happens, most people are able to engage in the conversation. And they learn from the conversation and they listen to each other. So I think there is a real desire in the country and we've seen it in, our, in, in all the forums we've done and a lot of the research that's being conducted that people are yearning to have a meaningful conversation but don't know how and are afraid to do it. And I think uh, another point there is there are a lot of uh, models and new norms being created, particularly on social media and in the digital universe, that are teaching people, particularly young people, that this is what politics is. It is nastiness, it's attack, it's um, calling Republicans, you know, Republicans, and uh, I can't remember what the, the terms are for Democrats. I used to go a lot onto Politico during the last election and read the stories, and then for my sins, I would read the comment strings, and I would just start, and, and even people I might have agreed with politically, I'm just screaming in my head, no, no, don't do that, you know? That's exactly the wrong path to go down. Yeah. So have you noticed that? Are you on social media? Do you go on social media? What kind of role do you think that's yeah. playing in the discourse right now? Well, social media is where people go to hate. That's always been my view. Um, if, you want to read the, if you want to really uh, uh, just bring yourself down a few pegs, just read the comments. And that's, uh, no, I, 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 no, I have a Facebook account and I have a Twitter account and mm -hmm. we put some things out there and I, I try not to overdo it. And, but we, we engage, but I, I mean, I think social media has not been particularly uh, 
helpful to political dialogue mm -hmm. because people just are, I think feel somewhat uh, uh, liberated in that they'll just post things on social media that they would probably never say in a, in a discussion like this. Yeah. Right. They just, yeah. they don't so, do so Chris, yeah. um, so one of the things we've noticed in our work mm -hmm. um, is um, that mostly what people talk about their, their work on social media is they get into a rebuttal thing. That somebody says something and they feel like they have to rebut that or come back at them. Uh, the conversations I've been having with younger people, um, with, you know, with people that are on social media a lot, is to say rather than rebut, ask a question. Um, so ask people, why do you say that? Um, and the question is not, how could you be so ignorant? Yeah, that's not the question. Yeah, exactly. The, you know, to ask questions like, why do you say that? What's the evidence for saying that? Where does that where does your evidence come from to get people to actually to start to think differently rather than to get into the rebuttal mode? Uh, they're, they're starting to try that, and the reports back have been that it's actually changing the tone of their conversations on Facebook and Twitter, that, that by asking questions, people are, trying, are, are not coming back at them so hard. They're actually engaging in a very different way. And so that building these connections, taking the learner stance, rather than the teller or the um, proselytizing stance seems to be helpful to try and, as a way of bringing people into a different kind of conversation. We don't know what you're doing next, but I'm going to um, create the hypothesis that your next job is going to be king of the world. Um, and we're looking at... I have to be king of my household. Mid-term <laughs> mid elections and then a presidential election. Um, which um, bids fair to be even more expensive and maybe nastier than the last one we endured. If you were king of the world, what would you do to change the conduct of elections? You know, I don't know that it, it's... If, if, I, if I could change anything, I'd like to change the primary system. I think our, our problem here is the way we conduct primaries. I mean, you look at our the Constitution and our forefathers. I mean. Primaries were never something that they envisioned, but we have them. I'm not, I just don't like how our primaries, and you're witnessing it in, in this election cycle, and more on the Democratic side this time, the Republican side, because there's so many Democratic candidates, that you know, when you have these multi-candidate fields, these, these fringe characters have a much better chance of breaking through in a primary. And then if they're in a very safe seat, they're likely going to win uh, in the fall. And I think that's, if I could change anything, I'd, I'd change the primary system. But I'm not really sure how to do it. Maybe open primaries. I'm not convinced that California system is the best way to go. I mean, California, I mean, Demo the Democrats may agree with they, you. In a few I think they really agree with me right now. <laughs> Democrats are going to, uh, are going to have all kinds of problems out there potentially if uh, you know, they split the vote up so many ways they get two Republicans finishing one and two, uh, particularly in Orange County. But nevertheless, I'm not sure that's a good answer. Uh, open primaries might be the, a, a better answer, uh, but I don't know. I, and I'm not crazy about these nominating conventions either. Those can be even worse, because um, those are the real activists who show up. Mm -hmm. So I'm, we have to restructure this, this primary system. Okay, well, either that, or there's going to be an independent movement, just like you saw in France, the two major political parties collapse, and up the middle comes Macron. Looking, I just met with some of the Germans again this week. You know, the two major political parties over there barely got a majority of the vote. The Christian Democrats, center-right, Social Democrats, center-left. They got 53% of the vote between the two of them. 
I mean, there's something happening. By, by the way, if we see you suddenly overcome by a desire to go to Iowa and New Hampshire, we'll know what's going on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, Chris, I mean, I, I, mean, I, mean, I, mean, I think you know, part of the issue is not, you know, so the primaries and the elections are where we focus. But for, for me, in the work we do, it's more about what happens between them and what happens in communities, the way the communities talk with each other. And I don't just mean neighborhoods, but I mean dish, congressional districts. What's going on? What kind of conversation is going on in between the elections? How are people talking to each other? How are the issues being discussed uh, between the elections? Are they being discussed from polarized perspectives, the far left or the far right? Or, or do people actually have, a com have opportunities to come together with each other to talk, to talk about their differences and to figure out where they may actually agree? And how do we create systems between the primaries where there's conversation going on among residents of the communities that, that should actually lead it's, them to think together rather than separately. It's important for elected officials, particularly members of Congress, to show up. What I mean by that yeah. is that you have to go into communities and talk to people yeah. who may not always agree with you. Don't be afraid to do that. And, and what I've noticed is a lot of members, again, in safe seats on both sides, they tend to just meet and talk with people who they already agree with. And they reinforce what they already believe. Yeah. And, and many of their, that's just enough, that's enough to win. Yeah. That's all they need to do. Now, and this is where, you know, representing a marginal or a swing district is different. You know, and I've, I would say to some of my colleagues from these very safe districts, I said, do you realize what the math is where I live in my congressional district? I need to win 85 to 90 percent of the Republicans, a little over half the independents, and about 25 percent of the Democrats to win. That's what I, Oh my goodness! Well, it's it's you know why do you have to? Do, it's a it's math because there are more Democrats than Republicans in my district, so I actually have to win Democrats. If I won 100% of the Republicans, I would and I, I didn't get the Democratic or Independent votes, I lose the election. Do you understand that? It's very simple. It, it's very simple. It's very basic. So, and so the the, the point is, you, you have to talk to people who may not agree with you because I think a lot of members are very good at standing up there. And I don't know, I'm just, I was, I'm just, I'm not wired this way, but some people are very good at standing up and just throwing out red meat all day on the right and the left. And that's these soapboxes. I mean, it's like, they sound like activists. I mean, as opposed to, you know, I'll say legislators, where you actually have to get something done, you know, regardless. And that's why I like being on the Appropriations Committee, because I always said it's the only committee that has to do something every year. You have to actually fund the government, no matter who's the president or who's running the Senate or the House. We've got to put together 218 votes in the House, 60 votes in the Senate, and get a president to sign it, no matter who's sitting in the chairs. And so it doesn't really help if, you're just going to, if we just go out there and you know, just you know, insult each other and make these you know, red meat statements 24-7, because sooner or later, we're going, to have to, we're going to have to cut a deal. So you have to actually engage them, and then you figure out things that you know are completely unacceptable to them, and they have to understand what's completely unacceptable to us. And so we try to discard those issues, and then we find out what we can agree on, and we figure it out, and then we move it forward. Yeah. And that, that drives a lot of my colleagues crazy. They, they accuse us as, you know, these are the Republicans, Democrats, and appropriators. You know, that's a, it's supposed to be an insult. And uh, yeah. I think it's a compliment, but, but nevertheless, that's a, <laughs> that's a but that's what we deal with. But it's, it's a matter of engaging and talking with people yeah. and showing up in those communities. Yeah. 
Okay, we also want to give you an opportunity to ask Congressman Dent questions in the Last Brother program. Uh, if you have a question, raise your hand. My colleague Lauren Cristella has the mic and she'll wait till she makes her way to you. Do not take the mic away from her. Let her hold on to it. And please, and my friends from Sunday Breakfast Club know this speech. When you're asking a question, please ask it in the form of a question, not a five-minute speech where the question is, don't you agree with me? Members of Congress do that all the time. <laughs> I'm not going to touch it. <laughs> Charlie, first of all, thank you so much for your service oh. and for making Pennsylvanians proud every oh. day you do. Oh, thank you, Katie. Very kind. Now my question. So you've commented on a number of issues. I guess my question for you, though, is the bigger picture and whether you think that we have touch some poison in facts don't matter, in what we're willing to make up about people, that our representative democracy itself is in jeopardy, and what your reflections on that might be. Yeah, um, yeah, you're right. People don't agree on facts anymore. But I, I would say that a lot of uh, democratic values are under assault. I'll say Democrat with a small d. Democrat values are under assault. You know, these idea, the idea of a, an independent judiciary free press, rule of law, they're, they're under assault and on, on, a, on a global basis. And if you think about it, um, I, if you kind of take this at a much higher level, you know, this, this notion of democratic capitalism that we have, free markets that we've embraced and shared with our friends and allies, I would argue has been very good for Humanity has been good for the world. It's brought a lot of prosperity and freedom to a lot of folks. You need that po political and economic freedom. And, but you need independent media and uh, judiciary. You need all those things are prerequisites, rule of law, very important. And we're right now being challenged by this alternative model of what I'll call autocratic state capitalistic, uh, the, the, say the Chinese model, Chinese, to certain extent Russia, maybe a crony capitalistic model. That's another model that people are looking at that doesn't embrace free speech. You know, uh, you know rule of law is a, a problem in many of these places. Uh, independent judiciaries are, uh, don't exist in many of them either. So I think that's really the challenge on a global scale. And, um, and, I, and that's one of, the challenges, one of the issues I have with President Trump. He's been too quick uh, to say generally kind things about people like Vladimir Putin or Erdogan in Turkey. You know who's been backsliding, uh, or other, you know, uh, Duarte and um, the Philippines and, and others. He, he, I think that's been a, an issue, uh, and you know, as a, and I learned to appreciate this that it's the role of the president of the United States to stand up and defend democratic values, and we we've, we've taken it for granted for so long because presidents of both parties have done it. I remember when George Bush, George W. Bush was president, he used to talk about this all the time, but and people I think I got tired of it, but now hey, I kind of understand why. Then for a while, then Obama started talking about it a bit more. But I understand why presidents talk about this because we established, we the U.S. established this rules-based order after the Second World War. I would argue that our country has benefited enormously from it. Enormously. We set up this uh, system uh, with our friends and our allies. Uh, and it has been, on balance, quite good. You know. Uh, things like NATO, uh, European unity. You know, we didn't set up the EU, but we helped lay the foundation, and, and there are people who yell about the EU. I say, hey, you know what? I kind of think the EU is a good thing. It's just me. You know, it's just me. I think, you know what? When the Germans and the French 
disagree now. They go to Brussels, oh, and they talk about it. They don't send armies across the borders anymore. I mean, it's really a, that's a, that's, that's progress. You know, <laughs> that's progress, you know, compared to the last century. Um, so, you know, this is a, a good, it's nice to see a German chancellor who says when there's a problem, we need to talk about this. We have to sit down as opposed to what we saw, you know, with, with Hitler and, you know, his, how he, you know, how he reacted to all these issues. So the point is, we, We've done a lot of really important things. We build a system in an order, a global trade regime, alliances. I think we should double down on it right now. I don't think we should walk away from it because the Russians want to take it down. The Iranians can't stand it. China, it's a little different, more complicated. But there are plenty of people who hate this order. Uh, and uh, I think we should try to work to strengthen it and enhance it and improve it. Um, the length of our election cycle, Canada complained about a six-week election cycle, and so did the UK, and ours just goes on endlessly, and it seems sort of pointless to me, and I wonder if you can speak to that, since you talked about the primary system, which is also, yeah. to my mind, annoying. Yeah, you know, that's, uh, you know, I guess if you put it in that context, maybe we should, uh, we, that would require some pretty serious regulation. Um, how do you regulate an election? In those, in those countries where you have parliamentary systems, uh, I think it's easier for them to control the length and time of, a, of an election. I said, okay, they were going to call, like Theresa May, foolishly, uh, called for an election. Um, and, you know, and I guess I forget, I forget how many weeks or months it was, but it's a relatively short period of time, and they have an election. Uh, it wasn't long enough for her. It wasn't long enough. It, didn't, it, uh, it kind of backfired on her. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, um, I, I, I don't know that we could... I wish I could figure out a way to shorten the election cycle as a candidate. It would really be nice. I'd rather just be nice if we could just do this for uh, for six weeks and and then uh, you know then call a truce for the rest of the time. Uh, but I, I'm not sure how we do it in our system. We'd have to completely reconstruct the primary system, or unless we had a system where the primaries would be like in. Uh, 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 you know, like some states, like New York, I guess, for the longest time always had primaries in September. Yeah, Delaware, then, which is obviously a different and, situation in a lot of ways. Delaware does it in September, and then they have a six, six, seven-week campaign. That that might short. It certainly shortens the general election campaign, but it may not shorten the primary campaigns. Yeah, right. You'll still be out there slugging away. So I'm not sure I have a great answer to that one. I wish I could shorten it too, but maybe a parliamentary system would work uh, better for for that. And. Uh, all I can say is I saw an Indian parliamentarian, and he commented to me, and very publicly said, Congressman, he says, he says you have a remarkable system of government. It would, uh, it would work beautifully here in India. Frankly, it would work better here than it works in your own country. <laughs> <laughs> so, Last question. Yeah. Well, I'm going to let you warm up for a possible career as a pundit. Uh, do the Democrats take back the House? Well, here's a, I'll tell you the ranges. The best case scenario for, I'm going to say, uh, for House Republicans is the best case scenario is the Republicans hold on to the House by their fingernails. That's the best case. Worst case is Republicans lose more than 35 seats. Uh, if I had to predict today, you know, the Democrats would probably take the House today. Today. I mean, uh, you know, a few months ago I said it was 50-50, but I can, I can start going down the list. You know, the Demian seat's gone, the Costello seat's gone, the Ross Leighton seat's gone. Depending what happens in California, a few of those seats can be gone. I, mean, I, can, I could probably find you a dozen Republican seats right now mm -hmm. that are gone. So the Democrats need 23. 
So I can get you to 12 in about, in a, in about a minute. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, uh, and uh, I can get you to about 12 in a minute. And so picking up the other 13, and you just look at the battlefield where all the, uh, where all the seats are in play. There are so many more uh, Republican-held seats that are, that are toss-up or you know, slightly in Republican, tilt Republican. So many more than on the Democratic side. The Senate's a different matter, though. Right. I mean, the, the Senate, uh, you know, you could see that there's a lot of scenarios where the Democrats could win the, the House and the Republicans could uh, maintain the Senate and maybe even pick up a seat or two, right. possibly. So at this moment, I'd like to say, Congressman Dent, thank you for being here today and thank you for fighting the good yeah. fight. Thank you for having me, Chris. So as you heard, Charles Dent was pretty candid that day about a lot of topics, including the idea of what's wrong with our primary system, which is a topic near and dear to the heart of my colleague, David Thornburg. So let's bring David, the president and CEO of the Committee of 70, in. Hello, Chris. Hey, so you were there. You were listening. In fact, when he's, when Charles said what he said about how messed up the primary system is, I did a little glance at you in the audience, and you were smiling. I raised my eyebrow. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting because I, I think you just basically asked him, you know, if you could change something that would reconstruct the center of the political conversation, what, it would, what would it be? And he went right to the structure of the primaries, the sense that, you know, these party-driven partisan primaries are increasingly driving people to the, the tails of the political extremes, recruiting candidates from those extremes, and therefore, once they get elected, they have no reason to move to the center in, in the spirit of consensus. Right. And, and of course, then a couple of days after the event, we just did it again. We had more primaries in Pennsylvania. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But uh, that's, it's absolutely a conversation we want to follow up with uh, with Charlie Dent uh, because this is something that's, 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 warm, uh, uh, that's a warm topic over at the Committee of 70. And I think, as he pointed out, there's been an awful lot of attention on the redistricting issue for the same reason. But in fact, the open primaries piece might have a greater effect on the overall political calculus. Right. It's essentially a one-two punch. You have to get redistricting right so that the uh, the maps don't set up an impo the impossible situation he described where minorities on the fringe exert undue power, you know, over the hearts and minds of incumbents. Yeah. But then the second piece, to have a truly fair and competitive election, you have to open up the power, change the primary system somehow. You want to talk a little bit about exactly what that is? Well, there's lots of variations on a theme when it comes to open primaries. We've talked about that before in this setting. Um, you know, the simplest thing actually is that you allow independents to choose the primary in which they vote for a given uh, election. Right now, independents in Pennsylvania don't essentially get to vote much on primary day. Um, and New Jersey, uh, for instance, allows independents to choose whether you want a Democrat or a Republican primary, uh, whether you want to vote in that on Election Day. Interestingly, not I think about a week before your conversation with Charlie Dent, the majority leader of the Pennsylvania House uh, expressed his intention to work on a bill that would do just that, with, that would allow independents to vote in primaries. So there's interesting little kernels of popcorn popping around uh, this issue right now. Right. So one other point we want to make, um, this event um, that Charlie Dent spoke at was co-sponsored by the Penn Project for Civic Engagement and the Committee of 70, and there's a reason for that, and we want to talk a little bit about that. So. Right, right. 
Well, as I said at the event, you know, Committee of 70 has always been founded on the, the basis of constructive civic dialogue. And, you know, in working with you and on a number of things over the last couple of years, it's, it's dawned on us that maybe we need to be more intentional about that. So uh, uh, we have had, as you know, discussions with, uh, with you and Harris and the, the folks at Penn about the idea of migrating um, at least most of uh, the current Penn project on civic engagement to the Committee of 70 to give us a better f- foothold and standing uh, with which to conduct this sort of work. So very exciting stuff and uh, I's to cross and T's to dot uh, still, but uh, but yeah, good and, stuff to come. Yeah, and from the project's point of view, while Penn has been a good home over the years, um, in a lot of ways, the Committee of 70, as you're running it, um, with the air of entrepreneurial air and the interest and engagement, it might be a more nimble home than, uh, with all due respect, a very large university bureaucracy. So we're looking forward to continuing those conversations and seeing what uh, useful mischief we can make together. Yeah, because here's the thing. It's not like we're drowning in a sea of constructive political dialogue these days. (laughs) Yeah. I think there's an opening. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, there's a joke that I often make when Harris and I are introducing ourselves when we're starting a new project, such as the school board listening tours that we're doing right now. And I often say, we've been doing this work together, trying to help people have productive conversations that lead to understanding and solutions for about 20 years now. And if you look around the national political situation, it's obvious that our work is just about done. <laughs> Check now, the box. You know, on to the next there's one. There's a little bit more work to be done, so we're looking forward to doing it with the Committee of 70. Well, there you have it, this special bonus episode of 20 by 70. Thanks, as usual, to our producer, Joel Kawabunga-Patterson, and to my uh, partner to the right of me right now, David Thornburg, the CEO of the Committee of 70. This one we actually taped at WXPN Public Radio in University City, which rode to the rescue after our regular home at Kelly Ryder's house on the Penn campus became unavailable due to renovations. So thanks very much to WXPN for being such a generous, impromptu host. And also thanks to the Science History Institute for helping us put on that good show on May 11th. Special thanks to those at the Committee of 70 and at the Penn Project for Civic Engagement who worked very hard to pull that event together. Linda Breitstein, Lauren Christella, Dan Bright, and Justin Villery. Also thanks to my longtime partner in Civic Dialogue, Dr. Harris Sokoloff. Thanks as always also to our partner in this podcast, Young Involved Philadelphia, that energetic volunteer organization working every day to keep younger Philadelphians informed, engaged, and connected. So until next episode, which will be coming up very soon, as columnist John Barrett joins us to talk about the recent Pennsylvania primary and what it means for government reform, we'll leave you with our usual advice and exhortation. Expect more, Philadelphia. August 1920, Mother Jones put out the call To the hills of West Virginia Came 13,000 strong Special 